When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. I'm your host, Gary Morgan. With me, as always, is the beat writer for Pitt Athletics over at DK Pittsburgh Sports, Corey Crisson, fresh back from Georgia after watching Pitt come back and uh, take that victory in Georgia Tech. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good, Gary. Uh, yeah, like you said, back from Atlanta, you know, where the players play, if you know what I'm talking about, the, the hip-hop heads there. Um yeah, busy week uh, in general in Pitt Athletics, of course, and it's not slowing down anytime soon. This is a little stretch run here on the road for Pitt, and soon that's going to end uh, by the time we we sit down and record next week. But um, I'm doing well personally. A lot of fun on the road this past week, as as you might have saw. So, um, but good to be back in Pittsburgh, definitely. Yeah, you're racking up friends in just about every corner of the globe here, brother. So <laughs> it's good to see you uh, being able to reconnect with people every time you go somewhere. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, John Hughley. At least it's no longer a question whether he's going to come back or not. You know, So the team in some ways can can move forward at least planning life without him this season. What are your thoughts initially? And I know that you have limited amount you can actually share on this situation, but go ahead and give the guys what they can hear. Well, the first and foremost thing, obviously, is we can only hope that John can get himself in the space that he talked about. He put a tweet out uh, just before Pitt tipped off in Atlanta against Georgia Tech about, um, you know, making the decision to step away for the season, making the decision to focus on his mental health and Obviously, rehabbing his, his knee injury that he entered the season with, with the sprained knee. But that's that's all you could do right now at this point as a fan, as a supporter, as whoever it is, you know, an observer of the Pitt program is, is just that hope that John can get in a good spot, to hope that John can figure this out, so to speak, and, and can, you know, hopefully return to play basketball next year. I mean, you know, in these types of situations – there's, there's never any guarantees on the other side. You can only hope that the player can find his own personal resolve, his own personal happiness, his own personal um, maybe even re, re-motivation, if you will. And, um, you know, we'll certainly see what happens. And I don't want to get into speculation on what's going on or, you know, what 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 truly is the situation. Because, you know, as far as we can see, it's, it's something that's clearly very personal to John. So sure. we're just going to leave it at that. And um, again, all you can hope for as, as a supporter is that he can come out on the other side in his best version. And like you said, in terms of basketball, you know, by this point, Pitt has played more than half of their games this season without John. And that can come at for better or worse. We saw it, you know, for the worst, so to speak, against, you know, Duke and Clemson, where Pitt was undersized. They got bullied underneath. They lost the rebounding margin by a lot, especially against Duke. And then, 
you know, you come back against Georgia Tech, a team that doesn't have as much size, and you and you get a road win on the ACC. So even um, as we ignore the rebounding fluctuation again, right? <laughs> I, I will definitely choose to ignore it after a win. But you know, when it comes to Pitt right now, you know they're in a pretty good position, as I wrote about after the Georgia Tech game, and. They're in a good position in regards to the NCAA tournament bubble, racking up road wins on the ACC. Not only is hard to do, but it's also necessary for a team that wants to reach the NCAA tournament. And look, for as rough as the schedule was, really going back to Syracuse, because anytime you have to go up to Central New York and play in that dome, it's tough. Um, Going back to late December in that schedule, Pitt is starting to lighten up now. Georgia Tech, Louisville has been, I don't know what they are this season. Florida State has had a down year with regards to my expectations, and then Wake Forest is a team that can be beat. So things are lightening up for Pitt, and now they know for certain that they're going to press forward without John. Yeah, and I think that's that's key. And I also would say, you know, even if you're somebody that is just going to push aside, you know, mental issues, which there are unfortunately a lot of those people out there, I think you could – just look at when John did attempt to play this year and just see that there there is a big difference when you're in it and when you're not in it. And I don't know that you want that back either. It's really best for him, the program, and everybody involved to just let him go and figure things out. So wish him well. Move forward with, with the team you have. And speaking of that, I think we started to see – in this game a little bit, some of how they're going to plan to do that. And I think some of that is using Blake uh, Henson a little bit lower in the post and allowing him to create havoc in there a little bit. Yeah. Blake's moved from really a three to a four and especially without John being in the rotation, you know, with Greg Elliott kind of struggling to shoot, we've seen a lot more Nike Sabande over the last few games and, of course, Nike was unbelievable, uh, 21 points against Georgia Tech. He was the reason on offense why Pitt was able to come out on top. And I'm curious to note, and I want your take on this too, Gary, if now that we're kind of seeing a glaring weakness for Pitt, it really is, the, the lack of some size and some like that enforcer like we talked about in the last show is starting to lack underneath. Does Jeff Capel adjust does he start Hinson as a four and use him more as a true quote-unquote power forward rather than that that swing man that slasher does he start to use more Nike Sabande off the bench does he start Nike um maybe over a a Greg Elliott who again for a guy that you know prides himself on a shot has pretty much struggled to shoot the basketball over the last handful of games yeah so I'm curious to note now again with certainty with John and this is a good tie-in uh, that you you planned before the show started. I'll give you credit for linking my brain to this. Um, <laughs> but is this is this going to be Jeff Capel making adjustments to the rotation and the amount of minutes that are allocated towards guys like Elliot, guys like Hinson, guys like Saba, uh, Sabandi? And you have to think about the bench too because we've talked, again, about as we get into February – and as the calendar turns to March, of course, the season finale is March. I believe it's fourth at Miami. Pitt's going to have to go eight and nine deep in this bench. And by the way, they now only have nine scholarship players on this roster. Right. So you can't obviously use all of them every game. 
You have to play the game of, you know, minute sparsing. You have to play the game of fatigue, if you will. You have to play the game of, well, Pitt is now going on the third game of a three-game road trip when it, go, when it goes to Louisville Wednesday. So I don't know how much Nate Santos or how much Guillermo or how much Jorge we're going to see now going forward, but you have to think that uh, Capel has to start not emptying the bench, but at least utilizing more of that. And now, again, maybe we see more Jorge underneath as opposed to kind of going in and out. He, we've seen him take quite a lot of, you know, Jorge three as Graham, if you will. Um, so we'll see what happens <laughs> I love going that. forward. Well, so we'll see what happens going forward. We're still looking for that nickname for the Twins, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I heard in the stands people screaming Spaniard at him. So, like, I, I kind of like that a little bit. That was funny. But but there's two of them, so that doesn't really work. You know, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's take a quick break. Let's come back. Let's break down a little bit more of what they could do, what happened in this game, and move forward from that. Welcome back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Corey and Gary with you, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to jump right into the game, though. Pitt wins this game 71-60 against Georgia Tech. Uh, It's a game, quite frankly, they should have won, Corey. I mean, so um, I I hesitate to heat praise on them for, for winning a game they should have won. But, you know, it's a road game in the ACC. There's no such thing as a cupcake in the ACC, you know. I mean, um, we've we've seen bad pit teams beat people at home, so I mean, it's it's not a given that you're going to take every game. You should. This game in particular, there was a lot of bad mixed in with the good. Somehow it came out with Pitt on top. So why don't you talk about some of the things that stuck out to you that you felt like they did well? And then we'll talk about some things we think that they really need to improve. The number one thing I think that Pitt did well, and I don't think this will be indicative by the stat sheet. The stat sheet looks weird. This is a weird like stats game other than like for guys like Nike. But going along with Nike, the thing that stood out to me was that when Pitt needed production from its bench, like in the worst possible way, Nike was able to step up, and he was really a bright spot, not just because he led the team in scoring, but this has really been a good stretch run over over the last few games for him. Um, He has looked better. He has looked more confident with the ball. You can tell that he's really accepted the role as a six-man. And when you have a team like Pitt does where four transfers come in and four of them start, and Nike's been there, and he had the ACL last year, and he had to rehab, and – you would think that you would get your shot, right? I mean, if you're Nike, you would have to feel, okay, this is my chance to start at shooting guard. This is my chance to get in. This is my chance to play. And for a guy that, you know, he, he's getting up there in age, I believe he's a, listed as a redshirt senior um, with, with, of course, the COVID year and who knows eligibility anymore. But when you have a guy like that that's able to, and he said it after the game, you know, I asked him straight up, what is your role? Because he talked about his role on the team, his role, what he's able to do, how he can contribute. And he said straight up, he's like, I'm the sixth man. Like, I understand that. 
I'm the guy that has to come in and provide instant offense. I'm the guy that has to come in and pick up the scoring. But I think we are now seeing a more complete version of Nike than just the 3 and D kind of version that we might have seen earlier in the year. He's starting to make more evolutions as a player. So I think the number one bright spot um, for me was Nike and his play. And then I'll go with Federico outside of scoring because he wasn't putting the ball in the basket. He didn't take his first shot of the game until there were less than two minutes to play in the first half. He went nearly 19 full minutes without putting the ball up towards the basket. If that was even a shot, wasn't that a tip in? Well, there was one tip in Yeah, there was one tip in. And then like the first like actual field goal came like with a minute left. But Federico, other than that, was right outside of the box score in just about everything else. Seven rebounds, three blocks, two steals, and he was a team-high plus 14. He played 35 in the 40 minutes. So when you have a center that can put in 35 of 40 minutes and can do just about anything else that's not scoring when he's not scoring, there's a difference in that. He could not score, but he could also not rebound, and he could not block shots and he could not record steals the fact that he was able to find other ways to get involved in the game and to so to speak make his mark and to so to speak you know uh, fill the stat sheet and all this stuff that is a bright spot in and of itself for a guy that is playing like his 18th career major basketball game and like only his sixth major seventh major ACC game like this guy is starting to get it in terms of his role as well so I think what we're seeing now is the role players starting to really figure out and solidify where they belong on this team. And that goes back to the recruiting and that goes back to Jeff Capel on finding these selfless guys that understand their role, that know exactly what part they fit in well. And we saw the role players really shine at Georgia Tech. I mean, I would circle back on a couple things there. One, regardless of what Nike Sabande thinks he is or they call him, or when he comes onto the court, he's playing starter minutes. So, I mean, he, he played 35 minutes yesterday. Jamari Burton's the only one that got more than that. And, you know, I I think that that says what they think of him. You know, we talked about maybe should he replace Elliott? Uh, potentially. But I think he and Elliott both have the same problem. They both have pretty poor shot selection at times. And depending on which one of them is feeling it is the one I kind of want to see, you know, (laughs) and right now that's Nike. You know who it's like if you're an NBA fan is Manu Ginobili. That's a name. That's a name you probably didn't expect to hear today. Manu Ginobili came off the bench for all those great Spurs teams. And I'm using like a top of the mountain comparison, I think. But Ginobili came off the bench in like 700 games of his career. And he's a Hall of Fame caliber guy. and he was able to, with Tim Duncan and with Tony Parker and with all those great Spurs teams, was able to fit in and be not a number one scorer in terms of starters and in terms of like leading the team, so to speak, in scoring. But when he checks into the game, he's an instant threat to put the ball in the basket from any spot at any time. And that is a weapon that not a lot of teams have the luxury of putting on the floor. Nike could start. And in fact, Capel mentioned that he wanted to start Nike in the second half over Greg Elliott. Of course, Elliott's struggling. Nike was hot. And Nike said, no, you got to put Elliott in. You know, you got to have the starter synergy. You got to have the starters on the floor together. And then I'll come in and do my thing. 
obviously it worked out. But that's what this reminds me of, is that you have a player that could start, that could put up really good production. But like you said, he's still getting the minutes. So right. even though he's so not a quote-unquote starter. Matter, really, yeah. at the end of the day, right? Exactly. As far as Fetty goes, you know, I – I think, you know, we'll see him continue to evolve. I liked his rebound game yesterday better than I've liked it pretty much all season. And I do think that speaks to getting a little bit stronger with positioning. That said, Georgia Tech didn't really have an intimidating inside presence either. So, you know, a couple things about that that are strange. Not like talking about the stat line being weird. <laughs> They were out rebounded like crazy. I mean, especially on the offensive boards. 14 offensive rebounds for Georgia Tech, a team that really had no business doing so. And their field goal percentage or from three point range, 41.4%. There's the reason this was even a close game. That and the rebounds, right? Second chance points as well. Uh, let's not, you know, the, those offensive rebounds do turn into second chance opportunities. And Georgia Tech was able to capitalize on quite a few of them. This also stood out to me. Um, and it, it's forgivable for Pitt because they won the game. They only had five assists as a team. And, yeah. all, and all of those came in the first half. All of them. Over the last two games, Pitt has had 14 assists as a team. And that goes back to Duke. They had nine assists against Duke. Yeah. So They're a very one-on-one driven team and a very one-on-one driven offense. It's whoever has the ball and decides to charge, tends to be the one that controls the entire play. But as we saw this week against Duke and Georgia Tech, very opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of powers of the ACC. That kind of ball doesn't really work much against Duke, but you can get away with it in situations against Georgia Tech. Yeah, and it'll work against Duke until they adjust to it Mm -hmm. because they're capable of adjusting to it. Georgia Tech wasn't. And I think that's that that's a big difference too in, in this league. Uh, the teams that can actually adjust because they have the talent versus the ones that don't. The other thing that really stood out to me: this was one of the first games this season where Pitt didn't get into foul trouble. Um, you know, like there was only three f- field or free throws taken by Georgia Tech, and they missed them all. <laughs> so I've never seen anything like that before in in a major conference game. So I thought that was noteworthy. And Pitt, meanwhile, went 17 to 20 from the line. You could argue they won this game at the free throw line. Mm-hmm. You definitely can. And by the way, Nelly played with, he got two fouls like right before the five minute mark of the game. So he went in foul jail for about six minutes and then came off with about nine minutes to play in the half. And then, if you remember correctly, he came off the bet, he came off in that second half, I should say, and lit up the scoreboard. He had like 11 points in the second half. So. Right. Um, you know, when when you're early on in the game, too, especially when you're entering that foul jail, so to speak, when I say that, I mean, what coaches will do is if a player gets two fouls in the first half, they're sitting like you can't risk anymore. Um, and especially when it happens so early on. So Nelly had to go into foul jail. And, um, you know, when a guy like Blake Henson, for a good example here, over the last couple of games entering Saturday, really struggled with fouls. Of course, fouled out against Duke. There were about nine seconds left when he did, but still played with four fouls towards the end of the game. When one of your main guys underneath in an already thin front court is in foul trouble, and you know what? If you're an opposing team, you got to attack Blake Hinson. you got to attack Federico, 
and live with the foul calls and live with all the missed shot attempts and all that to try to draw contact. You know, that is a that is definitely a point where Pitt becomes beatable is trying to attack the paint and, and so to speak, deplete that death that's already thin down low. But Blake Hinson wasn't in foul trouble against Georgia Tech. He was on the floor for only 12 minutes in the first half, which I found kind of interesting. And I think it's partially towards what Nike was doing, but I also think it's partially towards the matchup. And what I'm fearing, and I want your take on this, is Pitt becoming matchup dependent? Is Pitt becoming like, we know if a team is going to be more physical than them, then they're going to win the game. Like, what do you think Pitt's ceiling could be in terms of like dependability on, you know, if they have to get a game against Duke again, or if they have to get a game against, you know, Clemson down the stretch, maybe in the ACC tournament, if they have to go against North Carolina again, are they able to do it again is what I'm saying. Yeah, I – I think they're going to struggle against most of those teams for that very reason. I think they are becoming very matchup dependent. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of development that I think can still happen with some of these players. Like I do think Fetty can get a little bit stronger inside, but something I think we should talk about a little bit. Maybe we'll do this in the third segment. The development of the overall offensive structure needs to happen. There is zero penetration to this offense right now. It's all about shooting, and it's all about one-on-one. There has to be some kind of a way to get whoever is playing down low more involved, or else it's always just going to come to stopping them. And and that field goal percentage from three-point for Georgia Tech that we talked about, did you see Pitt step out on any of them? I mean, nope. there was no fouls, right? But, like, I mean, they obviously weren't in foul trouble. That's good. But they didn't step out on anybody. They were letting people have a good three, four-foot window to, like, just hoist one up. You do that to anybody in the ACC, they're going to score. It's about tightening the screws right now. You know, I think there are a lot of things that pit maybe not figuring out, but I think they're still trying to fine-tune. And I think there's a difference between figuring it out and fine-tuning something. I think when you are trying to fine-tune something, they already know exactly or, or have a good idea of that weakness and of maybe from that film study on identifying the, the issue, if you will. So when you're, when you're facing Duke and you have Kyle Filipowski and Ryan Young pounding you underneath, I mean, they got worked underneath, especially in that second half. What do you do? You start to play Blake Hinson more on the low block. You utilize Fetty in such a way that, um, you know, you let him kind of shine on defense. You let him kind of rotate around and kind of just play the rim, rim protector. And, you know, I think you could credit Jeff Capel and the staff for adjusting into Georgia Tech. Obviously, an inferior matchup, but... I think there's still a lot to be taken from that Duke game that was applied to Georgia Tech. And I think the difference between what you're seeing with this Pitt team now and maybe what you've seen in a couple of years prior with Jeff Capel is that he actually has the pieces to be able to put these adjustments together. He actually yeah. has the front the uh, front court depth – or excuse me, he actually has the back court depth, I should say. 
to be able to rotate on these guards and to be able to fly out to these three-point shooters and contest shots and then kind of play outside to in, as opposed to other Jeff Cable teams, where, as you know, more front more front court to back court play. So I think that's all part of the system and part of the design. And look, there are some shots that Pitt will give up and live with, and there's obviously some shots that opponents will take and create and you know, there was a quarter three from uh, Debo Coleman uh, that I completely remember because about three seconds before he even touched the basketball, I could hear Jeff Capel. I'm sitting way up at the top, and I can hear Jeff Capel screaming, Debo, Debo, Debo. Nobody's on Coleman in the corner. Sure enough, I don't remember who, who the player was for Georgia Tech, finds Coleman in the corner, open three. Greg Elliott or whoever it was was late getting there, and he makes the three. So – they're cognizant of this kind of stuff happening. It's just a matter of being sharper in execution and being sharper in all of that little detail that they talk about so much. Let's take another quick break here, Corey. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about the upcoming schedule, the immediate upcoming schedule, and maybe have a little fun where you and I kind of say what we think we would do with this set of players offensively. All right, and welcome back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. We're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming schedule here. Um, first, on Wednesday, we've got Louisville. Louisville is right now the worst in the ACC, 0-7, 2-16 overall. Pretty poor team. Pitt, by all rights, should beat them. And boy, that should be comforting to hear because we haven't said that in years here. <laughs> so very, very, very good. And then Florida State on Saturday. And that game, uh, they are three and four, five and thirteen overall. Uh, as I was telling Corey in the break, I think that's a game they could still struggle in because Florida State is still historically trees. Tall, 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 long, long, long. So while they're not playing well, that's the type of team a pit offense has struggled against. So Corey, first comments on those two games, and then we'll move into how we think this offense could evolve with the players they have. What the hell happened to Louisville? The institution that was Louisville basketball is this is as bad as it gets for the Cardinals. I've never seen them this bad. I've never seen them this bad. Have you looked up their net ranking today or at all like over the last few days? Okay, there are 363 teams in college basketball. And pay attention to what I just said there. 363 teams in college basketball. Guess what Louisville's NET ranking is right now? I'm going to guess 362. <laughs> it, is, it is 336. So way in the back. The team ahead of them is McNeese. Two teams ahead of them. Holy Cross, the pride of Bob Cousy. But I digress. And Ken wow. Palm, by the way, Louisville ranks 282. One spot behind Lehigh. Two spots behind Central Michigan, which is 7-10. and 10 in the Mid-American Conference. So, point is, if Pitt loses to Louisville, all bets are off. They right. better they better put the foot on the gas and find a way to win by 10. I mean, that's the goal if you're Pitt. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that to incite anybody. I'm not trying to say that to hype anybody up. I'm just saying what needs to be taken care of. 
Pitt needs to win that game by 10 points going away. It needs to it needs to be an afterthought. We should not have to sit here on this podcast a week from today and have to talk about Louisville. We should be talking about two wins easily over Louisville and maybe not as easily over Florida State because that one's back at home and, like you said, maybe a matchup issue underneath, but I don't think they have the uh, backcourt depth to contend with Pitt. So we should be talking another two in a week here, and I wrote about this going into the Georgia Tech game. You know, this is an easy, 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 easy part of the schedule for Pitt. Georgia Tech, Louisville, Florida State should all be wins. Wake Forest is a tough game, still should win. It's at home. And then from there, you're kind of in a 10-game stretch that becomes a little more tough. So, you know, like you alluded to at the end of the last segment, we're going to kind of talk about how Pitt can do that. And that starts with the offense kind of developing back into itself, Gary. Right. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, I think far and away, Jamarius Burton has been the best player on the court most games that they play. Um, He handles the ball more than everybody else. The offense seems to run through him. And I think, Corey – the main thing that I that I would have to say if you're going to criticize him, which is not something I'm comfortable doing, really, is he when he drives the lane, he has got to become more aware of his dish opportunities. And that could be Fetty down low, who's sometimes in position to take it and maybe turn around and get a bunny or to kick it back out. Because you got a lot of three-point shooters that are wide open as soon as you collapse down the defense around Burton. Again, this is why you listen to H2P, because not only did I write about JB driving more and creating more opportunities in isolation, but here we are talking about it. And here we are talking about Jamarius Burton's evolution as a player. What JB's been able to do in terms of driving and in terms of getting into the lane and creating these opportunities via one-on-one isolation it's been great, but now he has to level up in it, and that's exactly what you're talking about. Play recognition, defense recognition, matchup recognition as well. There, are, right. there were quite a few instances that I noted in the Georgia Tech game where JB was driving, and that's great. And, he, and maybe against Duke, too. I didn't notice many against Duke, but certainly against Georgia Tech. He would drive. The defense would collapse on him, and that would open somebody up outside, namely a Nike or a Greg Elliott. And after the game, Jeff Capel talked to the tune of creating opportunities in penetration. And that meaning drive, kick out, drive, kick out. And then maybe that third drive results in your layup. So you can, cre- you can dribble, penetrate through a defense to try to create. You don't always have to put the ball up. And not that JB is always putting the ball up. He's, he's slowly getting into that funk of recognizing, and like you said, maybe dumping off to Federico or kicking out to Nike or kicking out to Nelly, whoever it is. So I think that Pitt did a little too much of that against Duke, and that came to the detriment of of them for a bit in terms of um, just trying to drive for the sake of driving and putting a shot up. I mean, you know, what's what's the adage in hockey, pucks on net? You know, what do you say yeah. in soccer? Balls on net. I mean, if you're basketball, you got to put the ball in the hoop. You got to get balls on the hoop. So, how do you do that? What is the most efficient way to do that? Sometimes it is taking that matchup and driving in and going up. But also, sometimes it's driving in, taking a matchup, maybe forcing a switch, and then recognizing that's the key word, I think, in all of this. 
recognizing what the defense is doing in their adjustments. Pitt was able to find more opportunities. And by the way, they were really efficient inside. You know, they were six to 20 from three, but they were able to hammer it, you know, kind of inside the three point arc and inside the paint and do a better job of scoring in the paint. So that's still an ongoing process and an ongoing development point. But I liked where it was trending in the game against Georgia Tech. And I think for some of their role players, like um, Nate Santos in particular, you know, he's he's a shooter. Jeff Capel's always talking about how he's he's hitting everything in practice. It's just getting it to translate into games, right? In order to do that, to me, he's that perfect example of a guy who would benefit from somebody doing a lot more of that kick-out passing. Get him open. And I don't think he plays well off of a pick yet. That takes a while to kind of master. But when he gets an open look, he makes a a quality shot. And I think if you do that, more often than not, you're also going to have somebody there to rebound because you've already collapsed the defense down. So you've already got a player down low. When you kick it out, it, it creates more opportunity to keep the ball offensively. And I think that's something Pitt has to work on. And so everything, to me, gets solved just by having JB be a little bit better with the recognition of what he's creating when he creates havoc. And maybe Jeff Capel instituting something that makes somebody a little bit more standard positionally, you know, where he knows somebody's going to be on his wing off to the right most of the time. You know, there are ways to create that sort of thing, and and we've seen them do it in the past when they had different sets of players. It's just now that you've got more talent, it's time to start figuring out how the pieces fit together. Well, let's put it. Let me put it this way, statistically speaking. Okay, Pitt went six of twenty from three uh, against Georgia Tech. Nike made three of six. Blake made two of seven. Oh, but everybody and Nelly made one of three. Those were your three three point makes. Uh, from the players. Pitt overall from the field, 24-56. If you take out those three-pointers, 18 of 36, half, 50-50. Pitt scored 17 points off of free throws, like you talked about in segment two there, 17 of 20 from the free throw line. Pitt scored 53 of its 71 points on either two-pointers or free throws. And for a team that, like we talked about in terms of makeup, being a team that's not built inside to out, that's built guard and, and, and small forward first, like JB, like Nelly, like now Nike, and even like Blake Henson in some ways. You know, for a team that is built this way and to have that kind of success inside the three point arc, I think that's, you know, incredibly telling in terms of how they're able to create these opportunities and how they're able to do this, but it's a matter of finding the right timing and finding, like I said, the right matchup. And I think that, you know, the depth in the front court, you know, that, that, you know, quite frankly, Pitt is lacking now with no John and obviously no Will Jeffries either. Let's not forget that Pitt has played without Will Jeffries all year. So when you have a roster that has to be retooled, not once, but twice now with John being out, you know, you have to, you have to adjust. And, and I think that, again, we saw those first steps against Georgia tech. I would like to see, against Louisville, more opportunities created inside, more opportunities for maybe even mid-range pull-up jumpers, dare I say. And I mean, Pitt was, pr- Pitt was pretty solid uh, in the paint. 
against Georgia Tech. They outscored Georgia Tech 30 to 16, doubled them up in the paint against, you know, after getting absolutely bullied against Duke. So a nice turnaround in terms of scoring in the paint and getting inside and creating those opportunities. But it's about finishing. It's about recognition. It's about being able to do it smartly, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, we'll see what next step they can take against Louisville. This is a game that Pitt should win by double digits, though. I don't see any they, issue coming they up here absolutely should. And I expect we'll see, you know, players like Santos and, and Guillermo probably up in the 15-minute range, at least, for playing time, trying to get a little bit more bench use out of out of them against a lesser opponent. But we'll see what happens. I, I agree with everything you said, and we've talked about Henson being used down low a little bit more. I still think that's being done more based on his size than the way he plays. And um, we'll see if he adapts to it or not. I haven't quite seen what I need to see yet to, to think that's going to work. And I want to shed a little bit of big picture perspective before we get out of here, because Pitt currently is 12 and six overall five and two in the ACC Louisville, Florida state, Wake Forest next. Those are three really gettable games. There is a shot that Pitt could be 15 and six going into the Miami game to close out January. I don't see, I don't see how it's impossible for Pitt to get 21 to 22 to 23 wins this year. I think that would be a really solid get that puts them obviously in the conversation, if not into the NCAA tournament, provided they win an ACC tournament game, dare I say two. And, you know, we'll see. They're in a good position now. They had themselves in good position, even with the losses to Clemson and Duke. But winning games like this against Georgia Tech, they should win against Louisville. They should beat Florida State. They should beat Wake Forest. You know, getting back on track with this stretch here, and especially with two of those games on the road. It's all important going forward. So Pitt's in a really good spot, I think, still, you know, in terms of the ACC tournament picture. And by the way, I thought it was funny that uh, Joe Lenardi on ESPN, his last bracketology as we record this, had Pitt as the last team in and Penn State as the first team out. So it's not just yeah, in football. I, saw, I actually saw Corey wrote a piece on DK Pittsburgh Sports about that. Or not Corey. Yeah, Corey Geiger. Geiger. Corey Geiger did, yeah. yeah. Wrote yeah. a piece on on that uh, as well on DK Pittsburgh Sports, which is pretty interesting. Um, certainly not rivals on the basketball court. Haven't been in a really long time. And then the yeah. other thing with the ACC that's interesting before we go, Corey, that I don't know. When's Notre Dame going to figure it out? They always seem to. And right now they're one and six, nine and nine overall. That is not Notre Dame basketball. I mean, they're they're a perennial tournament team and. I'm just waiting for them to just go on a run. <laughs> Matt Farrell and Bonzi Colson aren't there anymore, huh? That's, yeah. That's a tough that's a tough day for Matt uh for excuse me, I almost said Matt Farrell again, for uh Mike Bray. I, I mean that those Notre Dame teams, at least a handful of years ago, and I'm only shouting Matt Farrell out because I'm good friends with his cousin. Um, shout out to Tommy. But when I think of Notre Dame basketball, I think of tough physical action and, and just fast. But yeah. They have not been that this year. They're another team. I mean, again, Louisville too. Like that's an institution, right? Yep. Louisville hoops is an institution, but God, they have fallen off. So we, 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 you know, we'll see those two teams coming up here to to close out the season, no doubt. Right. The ACC is a weird place. Take advantage of it, Pitt. And before we go on for another forty minutes, let's just say H two P.